0: Morning. I invite you to open your Bibles along with me to Psalm chapter 29. Psalm 29, Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord, glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord, the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power, the voice of the Lord in splendor, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf in Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare In his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you this morning that you would do your work by your word, through your spirit, please help me as I lead us now. We ask you to open the eyes of our hearts in Jesus name. Amen. When I was in high school, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Dayton, so not far from here, and I worked at, I worked at a little dollar theater. It was called the Danbury Dollar Saver, and, and I worked there, and most days were pretty monotonous, really. It was, as you can imagine, uh, you know, you pop popcorn, you clean the popper, which was not a fun job um, you know, you sold tickets, you cleaned up the theater, and not much really stands out to me about that job. I worked there for three years. I don't really remember much, but I do remember, um, one day that there was a time the manager called me into his office, and he said, hey, Brandon, there's a tornado warning, and the tornado is right outside of our theater, so I need you to go tell everyone in each theater, tell them all not to panic, but they need to take shelter. And, uh, yeah, as proof that I was not mature enough uh to be handling an emergency situation like this, I was like, sure, okay, a <laughs> tornado. So I went outside and I, you know, I looked up into the sky and and uh figured I'd go out there, I'd see maybe a few clouds that were moving a little quickly and maybe a little bit of rain. I didn't think I'd see much more. But instead I walked outside and I looked, and what I saw was utterly terrifying. I'm I'm sure that you've had an experience like this yourself. You know, I went outside and the sky wasn't gray. The sky was, it was pitch black. And uh, there was one area of the sky darker than the rest. And I guess that's where the movement was. And so I figured, you know, this must be the funnel cloud that I've heard about. And then, you know, and it was like the Garth Brooks song, you know, the thunder rolls and the lightning strikes. And if you've ever seen the movie Twister, I felt like I was in the middle of the movie Twister. So I went into each theater and I said, Hey, everyone, please stay calm. We're in a tornado warning. And Uh, You need to, you know, take shelter, or do whatever. So so just put yourself in the shoes of the people in this moment. And I'm sure it's not difficult for you to do so. You know, with everyone being in this room, think of whatever the biggest storm is that you've ever experienced, whether that was a thunderstorm, a tornado, a, a blizzard, a hurricane, whatever it might be. And what did you think in that moment? In that moment, what did you feel? What did you feel in your heart? Did you feel panic, worry, insecurity, discomfort, annoyance? What about the glory of God? This is a psalm of David. I I, I do believe it's important to note that in the time of David, there was a false god, an idol named Baal, B-A-A-L. And Baal was worshipped throughout the ancient Near East, and he was the supposed pagan storm god. But the little bit we do know about Baal, we know that he was nothing like the god of the Bible. No, because Baal was not a creator. He was created. He was not in control of the storm at all because it was possible for him to be impacted by storms, and Baal was limited in his power. As a matter of fact, the ancient Near East pagan worshipers believed, actually, that Baal could lose his battles, and that meant for them that if If that was the case, that they would lose their battles against the weather and against, obviously, then their crops and even fertility. David makes it quite clear here in Psalm 29, that is not the sort of God you and I worship if we are, in fact, Christians. Because our God is Yahweh. He is the Lord. And the Lord in Psalm 29 is the creator. He is over all of creation. He speaks amid his creation namely the the storm. He is enthroned over, you'll see, even the flood and indeed over all things because Yahweh the Lord is enthroned eternally. In order for us to rightly read Psalm 29 this morning, we need to do so recognizing this is poetry. The former Moody Church pastor, Harry Ironside, even said, this is one of the loveliest poems I have ever seen. It is not This is not something to be uh, necessarily critically analyzed. It's a poem to be appreciated as what it is. It's not something to be studied with merely the scientific method. Instead, with a heart, your heart seeking the truth behind the words in the psalm. In order to love and appreciate this type of psalm, you must actually be invited to get out into creation and to encounter God's glory and his power in his majesty, even in the midst of a ferocious storm, and to remember that in the middle of the storm, God is there and God is speaking. He is speaking in a way that commands and directs the storm. And as a matter of fact, actually, church history documents that um, throughout the, the history of Israel, that whenever there was a storm, the people would actually worship together, they would gather together, uh, near the tabernacle, they would come together and they would, they would actually read Psalm 29 and, and then praise the Lord. A big part of the drive of this psalm is to absolutely press the unspeakable majesty and strength of God into my heart and into your heart this morning. And in general, when you're reading the psalms, there's multiple different, ty- we might call them types of psalms, but there's three really, really big ones that come up over and over and over again. There's, there's hymns, there's thanksgivings, and there's laments. And here in Psalm 29, we're still in the book one of the Psalms. We've already encountered multiple of these types of Psalms, but this one falls into the hymn type of Psalm. But this one has a special twist that we haven't yet encountered in any of the other ones that we've studied in book one. And that's this. This one is all about praise of God. From the very first word until the very last word of Psalm 29, that's all that it is. It's doing nothing else besides praising God. Other psalms, of course, they praise God, but maybe it's mixed in with thanksgiving or, or maybe a lament or something of that sort. Not this one. As a matter of fact, this psalm doesn't even really mix praise of God with specific applications, really. It's really just praise through and through. And also in this psalm, There's nothing but poetry to be found here. Of course, we've already seen poetry in other psalms, but this one is entirely built on two very important elements of Hebrew poetry, and that's repetition, as I was reading it. I hope you noticed that. And then parallelism. So just quick examples. A scribe, if you look down and you underline, uh, you'll underline it three times. It appears here three times. The Lord, Yahweh, is repeated 18 times. Glory is repeated four times. The voice is repeated seven times. So what is Psalm 29 all about? It's in your bulletin. It's also going to be on the slides. Worship the Lord because of his glory and strength displayed by his voice amid a storm. He is enthroned over the storm just as he is enthroned over all things. So he is able and willing to give peace to his people. There are three movements in the text. They will appear on the slides as we go. I want to help you map our time together, though. If you look again down at your Bibles, verses 1 and 2 go together. Then verses 3 through 9, clearly that's a second section. And then there's a third section found in verses 10 through 11. Let's first consider verses 1 and 2 a call to worship the Lord. More specifically, worship the Lord for his glory and worship the Lord for his strength. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in his splendor of holiness. You're going to notice all throughout this poem of Psalm 29, there's a feature of ancient Near East poetry called parallelism between the lines, specifically, something called intensification. So in verse 1, you're not getting two separate commands here. You're getting one command. It's just intensified in the second line. The command is, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. The second line intensifies the first by adding specific. So what are the heavenly beings called to ascribe to the Lord? Namely, glory and strength. And then in verse 2, the same feature occurs again. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Intensified in the second line, then, what does it mean or what does it look like to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name? It is to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Do you see that there? So, so, what we have here really is a call to worship the Lord. Why? Specifically for his glory and his strength. So, right off the bat, the question probably pops in your head well, what does it mean to ascribe to the Lord glory? What does that mean? This is James Montgomery Boyce helping us here, but he says that it means acknowledging his supreme worth with our minds, worshiping or bowing down to him. The Hebrew word actually means to bow down, which means a subordination of our wills and minds to his. If we are to worship God rightly, we must bow our wills and we must bow our minds to the Lord's. Take notice of who he's commanding here. He's commanding in verse 1, O heavenly beings. The word translated as heavenly beings, that's the same word that occurs in Job chapter 38, verse 7, referring to the sons of God. The angels who sang at the dawn of creation, shouting for joy. David is calling upon the angels in heaven to join him in worship of the Lord. And you might find this odd, but it's really not. We do this even in our modern church language. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Uh, The word appears again elsewhere in Psalms. Psalm chapter 82, Psalm chapter 89. And it refers really to the angels surrounding the throne of God. So in effect, David is saying, cherubim and seraphim Fall down beside thee. So naturally, you read this and you wonder is this call to worship the Lord? Is it for the angels or is it for humanity? Is it for the angels or is it for me? My answer to that is yes. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If you all who are in the throne room of God, look to God and you see his glory and you rightly respond to this magnificent glory by worshiping him, bowing down to him with your will and with your mind, how much more so ought we as sinful, fallible, finite human beings do the same? It's it's really possible that you read this and you think to yourself, it's such an odd thing that God's people would be called to ascribe glory to him. Do we not already do that? But, Repetition doesn't appear in poetry for no reason. It doesn't show up here to ascribe glory to the Lord once, but three times. David is drilling it into our brains that the right response to who God is, the right response to his glory, the right response to his strength is that we would give him the glory that he deserves, that we would worship him in the splendor of holiness. Why must this be drilled into our brains? And it's as Matthew Henry comments for men are backwards in glorifying God, and especially great men, who are often too much swollen with their own glory to spare time to give God his rightful praise, although nothing more is asked of them than what is just and right. Sin has entered into our hearts because of the fall of man, and because of this, We all fail to ascribe glory to the Lord in two very, very important and specific ways. First of all, we just simply do not recognize the glory that belongs to God. And then secondly, we steal from the glory that belongs only to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Is that not something you and I have tried to do? Tried to ascribe glory and strength to ourselves or to other people around us? Do we not prop up ourselves and others as if they are glorious and they are strong? Do we not look to our own arms? Do we not look to our own princes and our own warriors for glory and strength? When in reality, the only one who possesses such characteristics is Yahweh himself. And therefore, if any man does exhibit those things, it's only because by his grace, God has actually dispensed those things to him or her. Sin has made our hearts give glory and honor where we shouldn't. We therefore naturally were blinded to the glory of God. This is why we as Christians, we don't have hearts that are full with the awe, amazement, bewilderment, the utter glory of God on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis, like we should. Instead, our our, our daily, our minute-by-minute, our, you know, all-the-time hearts Glory many things, or find our glory in many things besides God, God. The glory of God goes unrecognized by us too often. Instead, we glory in lesser or even unimportant things. Just think about the preoccupation of your own mind daily, even just from this last week. Work and work things. School, school things, relationships and all that comes with that, everything that you gain from having them. In our daily lives, do we not often ignore the words of Psalm 29 because we're so focused on side conversations, we're so focused on side activities, we do not actually regularly realize and contemplate God's glory. If we so naturally ascribe glory to God, meaning that in our minds we decide that we're going to give the glory to the God that he deserves and then bow our our wills and bow our words and everything about us down to him and worship as verse two commands, If we did that naturally, even as God's people, then the commands wouldn't be necessary here, would they? Too often when we look at God's creation, we don't attribute glory to the creator. We attribute glory to the lesser creation. Rather than recognize the glorious creator over the things of his creation, we're instead blinded to him. Our eyes are full then with the cares of this world. And we too often ascribe glory to the wrong things in creation. Here's just a few. Money, sex, fame, career, comfort. The list could just go on and on and on. So here's the question. Where are you currently ascribing your glory? Who or what you ascribe glory to will inevitably be who or what you will bow down your life for and worship. Heed the command, ascribe glory to the Lord, worship him for his glory and for his strength. And not just as individuals are we called to worship the Lord in this way, but collectively as God's people, as faith church, as the church at large. It's as Spurgeon once preached on this verse, quote, as the thunder roars, the voices of God's faithful people ought to boom in a coinciding way so that as the glory of God is put on display, so we recognize and magnify his glorious name with our collective worship. That's the call of verse 2. And with that, we move to our second movement in the psalm. Verses 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord displays his glory and his strength amid the storm. So if a scribe to the Lord jumped off the page at you in verses 1 and 2, then when you look at verses 3 through 9, the voice of the Lord jumps off the page, doesn't it? David was not concealing what this psalm is all about. It's pretty straightforward. I'd say ascribe to the Lord is a key focus, and the voice of the Lord is obviously one as well. In many ways, you could take what's happening in verses 3 through through 9 to be answering the question, why should we be worshiping the Lord for his strength and glory? Why else other than the power of his voice seen here amid A storm. If we look at verses three through nine in the big picture, we're invited to imagine this massive storm that's being described here. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. God's people—they're being depicted as they're together in worship. They're in the temple, according to verse nine. And as as they're they're gathered together, they see this storm that's approaching. Think this through. Think of Israel. they're they're looking out to the Mediterranean Sea and they're seeing this storm and it's brewing over the waters of the sea to the Northwest. And if you look at the voice of the Lord here in this poem, it coincides with what would be thunder. It's the thunder of the storm. Speaking amid the storm over the waters, the God of glory, he thunders. Unlike Baal, unlike anything or anyone else we may be tempted to wrongly ascribe glory to, Yahweh is seen and pictured here as sovereign over this storm and over the waters, and his voice commands the waters. Verse four, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Again, this is poetry. And as verse three gives a description of the storm moving in over the waters and the voice of the Lord speaking in the thunder of the storm, verse four then rightly ascribes to the Lord the glory that he deserves because of the power Of his voice. And so in David's worship, he declares the voice of the Lord, unlike false gods, is powerful. And the voice of the Lord, unlike the supposed saviors and kings of this world, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The right way to view God in his creation, the right way to view God in nature the right way to see him in the weather that he controls, the proper posture when we witness God's general revelation, his voice revealing himself to us in something like a storm, is verse 4. To recognize the power and the majesty of our God. Do you realize that in the ancient Near East, the waters, especially the seas, were often seen as symbols of chaos? They were thought, they were thought to be unruly. Psalm 29 is stating quite clearly that is not the case. The waters are ruled by the very voice of Yahweh. What appears as chaotic or even terrifying in nature is, in fact, under the sovereign rule of the Lord. And the poem now, it moves in verse 5. So imagine you're with God's people, you're worshiping together around the tabernacle and and, um, you know, you've watched from, as it comes from, the storm comes from the Mediterranean Sea. And now when you get to verse five, it's making landfall to the north in Lebanon. And the voice of the Lord amid the storm, it's so powerful that look, it breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. It's shaking and Syrian like a young wild ox. So the storm is moving down from Lebanon Sirion, that's the ancient name for, for Mount Hermon. The great cedar trees of Lebanon are destroyed by this storm. These trees were a, a symbol for strength in the ancient Near East. But God's storm and his voice in the storm makes these trees no match at all. Even the mountains tremble in the midst of this storm, according to verse 6. Isaiah chapter 2 describes the day of the Lord when the fullness of God's glory will be displayed once and for all. And in these verses, we hear something interesting about the cedars of Lebanon. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to my words as I read. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it will be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall. Do you see that if the voice of the Lord declares his strength and glory amid this storm, how much more so is that going to be the case on the day of the Lord when all that man finds impressive, everything we have placed our glory in sinfully outside of God, it's going to be broken and shattered by the mere voice of Yahweh. The emphasis is on the power of Yahweh's voice. Why? Because a storm should remind us of the power in God's voice. But those who don't ascribe glory to the Lord do not. But the voice of the Lord is so powerful that it can break even the hardest of hearts. It can turn even a heart of stone into a heart of flesh by the mere power of his voice. Verses 7 through 9 describe the storm then moving through. It moves through the land of Israel from north to south. And it ends up in the desert region where God's people wandered following the Exodus. The storm has swept through the region and then you make it to verse 7. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. All the while this is happening, The psalm says God's people are in the temple and they're worshiping the Lord. The voice of the Lord displays his glory and strength amid the storm. And by the end of verse 9, the storm actually moves out of the region. You see that there? The storm moves through and it leaves. But notice, not before verse 7. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Of course, reminding God's people of Yahweh's judgment in his power. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Not only are the trees impacted by the glory and strength of the Lord's voice amid the storm, but look in verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. I take it that in this context, what, what's being said here is that um, the animals are so shaken by the storm that they give premature birth, while simultaneously the voice of the Lord is so glorious and powerful that The forests are being stripped bare. It sounds a bit terrifying, doesn't it? And yet, what are God's people doing at the end of the storm? In his temple, all cry glory. It isn't natural to think in verse 9 that this is the same as the angels in heaven from verses 1 and 2, since the description has moved from heaven to earth. The most natural, the most straightforward reading refers to the people of Israel in the temple worshiping during the storm. So the praise begun in heaven is now repeated by God's people who are witnessing the storm as its subjects. They have just witnessed it. This is the climax then of the psalm at the end of verse nine. They've just witnessed this incredible display of God's glory. And this is what Kidner writes, commenting on this. He says the climax is the answering cry of glory a response of humility, joy, and understanding, which reveals that to some, the storm is not an outbreak of hostile or meaningless forces. The voice of the Lord heard in all his works. So Psalm 29, in a poetic and beautiful way, it marries God's words with his works. You see that? And how do the people respond? They cry, glory, glory. And you and I obviously come to Psalm 29 and we read it with a little bit of a different perspective, don't we? It's absolutely correct to witness God in nature, just like David does here, and to rightly ascribe the glory he deserves because of his strength and because of his glory displayed by his voice amid the storm. Romans 1 does indeed clarify that God is perceived in his general revelation, his works within the creation, and yet, God communicates with us. He speaks to us. His voice is heard in other ways as well and at other times, such as in creation, but there's other ways too, like Hebrews chapter one. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God speaks at creation. Remember, he spoke and then things came into existence. He speaks generally in and out of his creation, but he speaks most clearly and most definitively and especially in his word, both the written word of God and the living word of God. This is Isaiah 55, 11. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose of God. For which I sent it. I think this next one is actually in our bulletin, and it's 2 Timothy three sixteen through seventy. All Scripture is God breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The written word of God, but we also know from John chapter one that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and John 1.14, the word became flesh and the word dwelt. He lived among us. That was and is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is so very fascinating is this, that when Jesus's glory was put on display at the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father spoke from the cloud of glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then he says, listen to him. When the voice of the Lord displayed his strength and glory amid the storm of Psalm 29, the people's response was to cry, glory. For those of us in this room who now have heard the preaching and the proclaiming of Jesus Christ and the fact that he has come into this world, that he is the living word of God, and it's attested to and written about right here in what we have every single day to read, how much more so should we take this grace, look at it, and and cry then to the Lord, glory. Now, why do I say such a thing? And how can I say such a thing? Because take a look at verses 10 and 11. The final movement here, the glorious Lord is our eternal king who gives peace to his people. Yet the only way, the only way that any of us will receive Either the strength or the peace of verse 11 is if we ascribe glory to him. If we truly worship him for his glory and his strength. Let's read this again. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Did you know that outside of... Genesis 6 through 9, this is the only place in the Old Testament where you're going to find the word for flood here. So I think it's pretty intentional. The reminder is not just of one specific storm in Psalm 29, but of the great judgment even in Noah's day. Every Jew who would have been a part of God's people listening, uh, witnessing the storm and, and worshiping God in Psalm 29, they all would have had their minds drawn back to Noah's flood here with verse 10. The point, God was enthroned over Noah's flood. He was and he is enthroned over Psalm 29 and its storm. God will be enthroned over all future ones as well because he will indeed be enthroned forever, eternally. James Hamilton makes the point, one with such might to enforce his word will never be dethroned. Yahweh was king at the flood and he will be king forever. With Noah's flood, God brought judgment on the world with water that he commands with his voice. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, listen to this. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses six through seven. God's glory is declared at creation. It's declared in creation, in a storm, at the flood, and even in judgment, even at the great final judgment. Just as at the flood, God's judgment was poured out, demanding a repentance and a turning to him, verse 10 says he was enthroned over it all. Well, at the cross, Jesus was flooded with the wrath of God against all sin of all time so that any and all who will repent and believe in Jesus recognizing that Jesus is Yahweh Jesus is the Lord he is the king forever and yet he came and he lived perfectly and yet willingly died on behalf of sinners so that if we hear this gospel message that I'm proclaiming right now if you hear that and you ascribe the glory due to Jesus because of Jesus's glory and because of Jesus's strength That means what has happened is he has taken this judgment of God on your behalf. And on that day of great judgment, what is he going to give you finally? He's going to give you his peace. How about in the meantime? Well, the strength pictured as a terrifying storm in verses three through nine. Think about this. That is the same strength then in this poem that is said to be given to God's people, the power of God. Yahweh's strength and his peace is ours because Yahweh is almighty and the almighty grants his strength to his people by his spirit. This is not the strength of war. This is the strength to stand firm in your faith. I wish I could sing well, because I would. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Only those who ascribe glory to the Lord, only those who gather to him through Christ will be at peace when the storm of judgment comes in the future. These are the people who ultimately experience the truth of verse 11, receiving the strength from the Lord and are blessed with his peace. This reminds me so much of Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And of course, this is the context of the incarnation of Christ. The angels, they sang praises to God in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 29. Glory to God in the highest. And then it ends with peace to those on whom his favor rests. Just like Psalm 29:11. Where does this favor come from? Where does this peace come from? It only comes from Jesus, the Prince of Peace. This psalm has a masterful way. Again, this is poetry. This is masterful. It has a masterful way of showing that both God is transcendent, but he is also imminent. He is with us. He's both great, but he's also good. He is high and low. He is mighty and he's merciful. We all tend to either emphasize um, God's closeness over his transcendence or vice versa. We can emphasize sometimes his transcendence over his closeness. What Psalm 29 gives us is both. That's because God is both. If God were merely transcendent and great without being close to us, then all we would be able to do is just be terrified of him. But if God were merely with us, and yet he was not the majestic creator, he was not the upholder, he was not the sustainer, he wasn't the king of the universe, well, wouldn't he just be the same as Baal? Wouldn't he just not be the God of the Bible? He wouldn't be sufficient. He would lack power. He wouldn't be mighty to save. And where do we see the apparent tension between these two realities so clearly? We see it in Jesus Christ. He is God with us. He heals the sick. He sets the captive free. He welcomes children. He forgives the sinner. And yet, as we read earlier, he commands the seas and the skies. And remember, he did it just by speaking All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. At his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. So Christian, if this is your God who exhibits his glory, his strength over nature, in creation, in and over the final judgment, in his son, in his written word, he is able to give you the strength that you need day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Look to Jesus and turn to his word in the Bible and listen to it amid the chaos of your day, whatever that looks like. You will find there that the Lord and his glory and his strength is revealed to you in the scriptures. That's where you'll find the strength that you need to be his faithful son or his faithful daughter. And he will bless you with this peace and the strength written about by the power of his spirit. Worship the Lord because of his glory and strength displayed by his voice amid a storm. He's enthroned over the storm just as he is enthroned over all things. So he's able and willing to give you his peace. One theologian even writes, this closing word with peace is like a rainbow arc over the psalm. The beginning of the psalm shows us heaven open while it's closed shows us his victorious people upon earth blessed with peace in the midst of Of the terrible utterance of his wrath. God is our resting place. This sort of strength only is had in the heart of someone who genuinely ascribes glory to the Lord, which is why we must do as Psalm 29 commands us. So, how do you diagnose this in your heart? Take a look at your life and ask yourself this question Am I being robbed often of the peace that God gives to me? Do I allow others to take that from me, to just steal it from me? Do I allow circumstances to take this peace that comes from the Lord away? Does it just slip through my fingers? Is it fleeting for you? It's, it's hard. And I'm not pretending at all to have this nailed down, by the way. Just ask my wife. But when the peace that is ours in Christ, because he has granted it to us, when that peace is not fortified, if it's shaky, it's lost often. If it's stolen by the cares of this world, then that means this, we have a worship problem. We're ascribing glory to the wrong person, place, or thing. Or we're just not recognizing the glory that God deserves in the first place. The entire creation, your entire life is filled with the glory of God. Do you recognize that? If so, you will look on this past week and you will think of times, you will think of instances when you looked at a beautiful sunset, you looked at uh, an animal, you looked at some sort of intricacy of God's creation, or you could think of some revelation in God's word that he gave to you for that specific moment. And regardless of what's going on on the outside, regardless of what people looking in on your life might think of your life, you have the peace that Yahweh provides for you. But this morning, you might be here and you may have no idea what I'm talking about. You may have never ascribed glory to the Lord in this way. You might have never worshiped the Lord with a pure heart. You may have never listened to the voice of the Lord most clearly heard in the life work and words of Jesus Christ. You may have listened to gospel preaching a million times. You might have been coming to this church for years and you have no idea what I'm talking about. You may have gone your entire life, and every single time that you look at a storm, you just go, oh, Mother Nature, she's wicked again. The Bible says no. God's glory is being revealed even in a storm because God is the Lord of the storm. You may have never recognized that Jesus is the Lord who sits enthroned as king eternally. And if that is you, there is is bad news. The bad news is the strength and the peace of verse 11 is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. And that's bad news because if God's glory is displayed in a storm, how much more so will it be displayed in the final storm that the Bible says is God's judgment? But there is good news too. Take a look at the cross as Jesus died in the wrath of God was satisfied because every sin on him was laid. And so now here in the power of Christ, you can stand even this morning, the storm of his judgment against all sins of all time. It came down on Jesus at the cross. He suffered, he died, but he resurrected victoriously. And the Bible says this, that he sat down at the right hand of God where he now intercedes for us perpetually. Ascribe glory to this Lord Jesus. If you do, You too, if you look at verse nine, you too will come face to face with Jesus and you too will be crying glory. You will have his strength. You will have his peace. And each time from now on, every single one of us in this room, each time from now on that you witness a storm, come back to Psalm 29. Allow it to be a reminder for you from this point forward that your heart belongs to God and you will ascribe the glory due to his name, because of his strength and because of his glory. For we are his people. He is our king. He is enthroned over even the flood. He will give us strength. He will give us the peace that we need. And in fact, he already has done so in Christ, hasn't he? And he will do so fully when he glorifies us. Philippians chapter three, verses 19 through 21. And in the meantime, daily, hourly, minute by minute, behold your God. Seated on a throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Will you pray with me? God, we praise you. We thank you. Because you are so clear in your word. Of who you are. How great you are how majestic you are, and yet how, because you loved us, you have actually sent King Jesus to die for us, and you have raised him from the dead in order that we may come into your presence, that we may have what we ultimately need, which is the healing and the forgiveness and the peace that has been broken because of sin. And so we do pray that any single person in this room who has not placed their faith and trust in you, that they would do so this morning. And if they need help talking that through, Lord, we ask that you would prompt them to find um, a believing person to walk them through your word and to help them to see Jesus. And for each of us in this room, Lord, may you by your spirit help us to look to Jesus and to bow our wills and our minds to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.